Hello and welcome to this week's Future Fix. Now, we've looked at lots of different topics in the series so far. We've talked about food waste, health and marine life. And today we're turning our attentions to something that's been generating a lot of noise in discussions about sustainability across our country for quite a number of years now, and that's agriculture. It seems clear that Irish farms are on the precipice of change and the driving force behind much of this is Ireland's need to reduce emissions from agriculture. So today I'm returning to the ATU in Sligo and some of the scientists there are going to talk me through their research projects. Projects that are part of a movement toward developing more climate friendly options for Irish farms. The buzzword here is, of course, sustainability. And today we'll delve into efforts to reduce emissions and the carbon footprint of Irish farms in a sustainable way, which means that it can balance the good of our economy and the environment with that of our society as a whole. Well, while I'm not a farmer myself, I can certainly respect the um, work and the efforts that farmers and farming community make in order to produce high quality products. And that is a testament to a history of, um, you know, breeding practices and, um, I suppose, livestock production and dairy practices as well. Um, The agricultural sector for Ireland is extremely important in terms of the economic side of it and the exports in particular. Um, And also the deep-rooted kind of history and and, um, heritage we have within agricultural practices. So in a way in which to try and meet sustainability goals, we also have to protect the national interest or, you know, our heritage in that way. So trying to improve the actual um, farming methods and practices in order to reduce methane emissions is obviously something we should strive towards. I suppose it's coming from sustainability goals and trying to meet that criteria of reducing methane emissions globally. So a lot of methane coming from agricultural pra- or agriculture is coming from um, livestock. Mm-hmm. And then the issue would be how do we actually maybe improve um, farming practices in order to try and reduce methane emissions and becoming more um, carbon neutral, I suppose, in a way. Um, but also thinking about the bioeconomy side of it. So the bioeconomy refers to the use of natural resources in agricultural processes overall. This is Owen Kenny, and he's a lecturer in health and nutritional sciences at ATU Sligo. The concerns that he just mentioned over emissions from agriculture are pervasive, and they've led to a lot of uncertainty over the future of Irish agriculture. Here in Sligo, he oversees a number of research projects that may yet prove pivotal in helping to resolve this. Uh, One of the projects that I'm part of is actually a European funded project called Sea Solutions. The project manager is Dr. Maria Hayes from Chagas uh, Ashtown. And this looks at um, supplementing animal feed with uh, seaweed uh, based products in order to try and reduce methane emissions from the actual livestock themselves. So particularly ruminant animals, in particular cattle. So there's lots of preliminary kind of studies out there looking at bromoforms in particular. So bromoform is a specific kind of compound that is found within red seaweeds or some species of red seaweed. And it has been shown within um, kind of trials, some animal trials, as well as in vitro, so in a lab-based environment, to be able to reduce methane emissions. Um, so that kind of link between seaweed and methane um, inhibition has always kind of has been there for a while and it's been established for a while. But now actually looking at it and seeing, well, 
can we look at it on a larger scale and can it actually be something that Ireland could potentially produce as a product or as a, as a feedstock um, for uh, livestock production. Basically what, what happens is we're trying to look at different types of seaweeds, whether they're Irish seaweeds or sometimes even um, European kind of seaweed species and feeding them into a system in order to see whether or not they can reduce the levels of methane that would, would be produced within an actual ruminant animal. The other thing I should say is that um, bromoform itself is a compound found in specific seaweeds, but bromoform is only one part of the story and it's probably where more of the research is focused on in terms of reducing methane emissions mm -hmm. with the use of seaweed. But there are other types of compounds that are potentially within seaweeds that have the, the capability to reduce methane emissions as well. So again, a lot of people, when they think of plants or natural resources, they always think about them from their nutritional side. Mm -hmm. So they're aware of the macronutrients that might be there. They're aware of vitamins, minerals, those micronutrients too. But the reality is that any type of plant species, uh, whether it's terrestrial or whether it's marine, contains tens, if not hundreds of other kind of compounds that are in the background. Smaller compounds known as secondary metabolites and in their plants, they're called phytochemicals. And sometimes these phytochemicals are there and they have um, extremely potent bioactive kind of properties associated with them. Those can be linked to things like anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, anti-diabetic, but as well as that, they've also been linked to um, methane reducing or methane reduction. Okay. The project consists of many um, kind of different avenues. Peter O'Hara is a master student who is hired as part of the Sea Solutions project. And Peter's project looks specifically at the identification of bromoforms within seaweeds. So he would look at all the Irish um, seaweeds to ensure whether or not there is bromoform um, present within them or not. But also then he's looking at red seaweeds from different sources from partners in Canada as well as partners in Europe. And in addition to that, he's looking at the antibacterial properties of bromoform um, compounds, as well as doing some cytotoxicity work on bromoforms themselves. So again, we look at the gut health of the actual animals themselves. So when you introduce kind of a new supplement within to the feed, you want to be able to look at the gut microflora and as well as the health of the actual animal to make sure it's not having any adverse effects, whether it could be something cytotoxic or whether it could be changing the actual microflora within the animal itself. So that's another part of this, the project. And then as well, looking at the uh, sustainability side of it and the life cycle analysis of, can we actually produce this much seaweed to feed or to, to have on a global scale for products? So there are people who are seaweed harvesters, particularly within the Northwest region here, and they would kind of balk at some of the numbers of biomass that would be required in order to produce the, the actual feedstock for mm -hmm. that, okay? Um, but there is another side of it looking at, well, how can we improve the farming or aqua farming, you know what I mean, to produce that, that mm -hmm. amount of seaweed? So whether that's sort of onshore, offshore harvesting of seaweed and then increasing the actual um, potential biomass that we can get back from these processes. Yeah. So um, how can we reach a level that we can sustain it through harvesting or through setting up of almost like an offshore farm for mm. seaweed. And you can see a lot of people investing a lot of time and effort into those kind of, um, I suppose, studies to, to kind of see how they can optimize the, the growth and the, the harvest and the quantity of seaweed that they produce. Well, looking at how our current system of producing meat can be changed so that it leads to less methane certainly seems to offer promise. At the same time, scientists have been considering alternative ways to produce protein that we traditionally get from conventional agriculture. 
ones that might lead to fewer greenhouse gases during production. I wonder if that's possible. Everything has to be, um, you know, thought uh, well before you say this is a better option versus uh, the other. Like, you know, if we want to, if you want to talk about insects, uh, we are exploring them as an alternative source mm. of protein. It's just, you know, to reduce uh, the amount of meat that uh, we consume and um, consume another uh, protein source. Just in case you're wondering, yes, you did hear that correctly. One of the ways that we can produce protein is from insects. And Dr. Maria Dermicki, who we met in the kitchen of ATU Sligo when we were talking about food waste, has also been taking time to look at whether supplementing animal and human diets with protein taken from our six-legged friends is possible. For food, uh, so far, uh, we have four um, insects that uh, they have been approved. Um, for feed, one that it is very popular is the, um, the black shoulder fly that it is also being, we have black shoulder fly being produced here. Um, you can't feed it to all the animals, you can feed it so far to uh, fish, so you can use it in uh, aquaculture uh, for poultry and pigs. So, you know, their advantages is their nutritional composition, but the nutritional composition depends on how they have uh, grown the conditions, depending on, on what you feed them, depending on their life stage, especially the fat content is affected uh, by, they, by their life stage. The, the good thing is that they do have the essential amino acids as well. The, the type of protein, the, the quality of the protein will also depend on what the, the insects have been fed. Uh, but the, the other problem that we have with insects is that they also um, have chitin um, and chitin is an indigestible fiber and this actually uh, reduces the absorption of, uh, of protein. Um, so this is a, a particularly big problem when we're considering um, insects that could be used as uh, feed uh, for animals. It is the, the protein uh, that it is extracted that uh, we could use as feed. Um, because when we have the chitin there, the animal ends up losing weight. <laughs> um, so again, it's not a very straightforward answer um, because, I'm sorry, I didn't give you any yes or no black or and white answers. The, the problem is that, um, you know, there are a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration. And that's why there is a lot of research. Uh, happening in order to see how we can optimise their nutritional composition. A crucial element here, and one that's emphasised in the UN Sustainable Development Goals, is acceptance. So the team need to consider whether or not Irish people are actually willing to consider insects as part of their diet. Do you know what? It actually just tastes like Nutella. Like a natural Nutella, like without the additives. Uh, it has crickets, uh, that's why it doesn't have palm oil like you would have, uh, so that's why it's different. So that's locust, and so it's the whole locust, so it's dried and has herbs for taste. Okay. Mm. It just tastes really like 
Kirby and... That's lovely. It's a nice yeah. texture. Yeah. It's a nice crisp. So, like, instead of crisps, you could eat that. Yeah, that's really nice. And you're not put off by looking at it when you're eating it. But after eating, like, the other yeah. stuff, like, as an introduction, yeah. and then eating the actual locust itself, like, it's grand. Very interesting. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Science Week at the ATU provided Maria's team with the perfect opportunity to get a taste of the public's reaction to the idea. So we're allowed to eat these insects in the EU and all of these products are made from insects. You see, you see the protein bar was made from insects and the pasta was also made from insects. This is a flower, insect flower. And you can even use a bowl for baking yeah. instead of regular flour. And these are chips made from insects. What are they? Grasshoppers? Yes. Grasshoppers. Crickets. Crickets. And yellow mower. Yeah, and if you didn't know any better, you'd think that was just brownie, chocolate brownie. Yes. And we have these uh, grasshoppers, crickets and milkers. Um, grasshoppers. Well, why don't you have a cricket? I don't know. Okay. What do you think? Nice. We need banana. Too banana. Too much banana. Like oh, yeah. But not too much cricket. No. Do, do you eat them just as they are? Yeah, but they, they have like herbs. But you can still eat them like this. It just tastes, it doesn't taste bad. It's just the texture that's just a bit strange when you bite into it. Nice, yeah. Would you try this one? Nope. nope. Why wouldn't you? Because it just looks disgusting. Yeah, it looks disgusting. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Is it nice? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You like this? It's actually nice. It's nice, yeah. I do not need to eat them all. What do you think, Thomas? Nah. I don't know. Some in your sandwich. No, no, no. What's in these crisps? Cricket crisps. <laughs> wow. Crickets? Crickets? This is the first ever time I'm tasting crickets and they actually taste nice. Did you eat a cricket? They did. So you've eaten a whole packet of those worms. They're nice. And you know what? They're really good for you. We'll be putting those in the shopping list. What do you think? Well, there were a few surprises in there. I asked Maria whether this feedback was in line with what she had experienced in the past. We have published a study uh, on people's perception towards insects and insect um, containing uh, products and that was, um, that was done back in 2018-2019 uh, that yet yeah, the time people were very reluctant. Um, it was mostly men who were more willing compared to uh, women to try um, different um, products and we did find that most people were willing to try the insects if they were disguised in another product so at the time people were not willing to try any whole insects it's uh, it's mostly uh, it's mostly disgust and it's mostly uh, food neophobia. So, um, but I can say for myself, like you know, I was reluctant to try, but I had to try. You know, I can't be doing this research without having tried. Um, but once I tried. I'm meeting all of them. <laughs> so, you know, like I, I don't uh, I don't mind like, you know, um, as as long as you create a, a, a tasty product. And uh, so, yes, I did try and 
I was so pleasantly surprised. I have no issues um, consuming them. Well, that's the best endorsement you can get. Perhaps there's something to insect bites after all. Next, we go from insects back to food waste. Not eating it this time, but using it for medicine. Well, I suppose there's massive potential because of the diversity of bioactive properties associated with different kind of compounds, you know, from from food waste or uh, from natural product sources. Um, So again, I have another project um, which um, my PhD student James Blee is currently working on, which is looking at antibacterial um, and antimicrobial resistance for application within either livestock production or from a clinical perspective as well. Um, the problem is that through sometimes overuse or misuse of antibiotics, the actual lifespan of um, antibiotics has become shorter because the resistant mechanisms that the bacteria evolve into come around a lot more frequently. Okay. And from a kind of a global health issue, it's a massive concern from the CDC and WHO um, in terms of resistance and the future availability of effective antibiotics. Well, I never quite expected that food waste might lead us to resolving thorny issues such as antibiotic resistance. I caught up with James, who told me more about his PhD. So my name is James Blee. I'm currently undertaking a PhD under the supervision of Dr. Owen Kenny at ATU Sligo. There's a lot of antibiotics at the minute that aren't being used because the bacteria have found ways to essentially make them not work anymore. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to combine um, extracts or compounds derived from extracts from natural products and the likes of food waste and we're trying to make them antibiotics work again and reintroduce them then to increase the available treatment options for these um, infections that can't currently be treated. Um, typically within even a clinical setting you've got six bacteria that are very, very prevalent um, and then you've got all these host of antibiotics that they're resistant against. So the likes of penicillin, the antibiotic, that's discovered from a natural product. Um, and what they did then is they altered it synthetically, so they call it semi-synthetic. And then you have a host then of different antibiotic derivatives made from that. You can't change so much of it that the structure is completely changed. That doesn't work against bacteria anymore. Um, but these antibiotics are known, currently they're not in use because it doesn't work against bacteria. But they were once effective is the main driving point. What we can try and do is we've got to try and overcome ways um, to reintroduce them. The odds of introducing a new antibiotic onto the market with a novel way of killing the bacteria is very, very limited. It's, it's very hard to find. There's a lot of people looking at it and they can't find it. Um, so now it's time to look at alternative methods and I suppose that's where we kind of come in and other individual researchers are looking at it as well. And um, One of the biggest things, I suppose, regarding our project, um, natural products and trying to drive um, drug compounds from these natural products is the sustainability aspect. So it's all well and good finding a compound that can that's very active even biologically, even as a drug. But if you can't derive that from a sustainable source, then it's going to be very expensive to make it. Uh, we're typically looking at food waste streams. So anything regarding um, peels, skins or ends that would typically be regarded as non-edible waste. Uh, we source them from total produce in slag. It creates that circular economy and continues that sustainability route. Um, just because there's far too much waste going on at the minute. Even like the way natural products you could do it anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, but then you could just use it as a, maybe on your skin, or you could use it as a disinfectant agent, um, depending on kind of what you're looking for. Or the other side of things is, because it's natural products and because it's, let's say, from food waste, a lot of animals would typically consume them as food anyway, because obviously the antibiotic resistance transfers to animals too. 
you could use it as a feed supplement either perhaps. And in fact, this brings us back to agriculture again. Owen Kenny explained how another research student, Peter O'Hara, is now researching whether bioactive compounds from natural sources can be safely and effectively used to treat harmful bacteria on farms rearing pigs. Well, the application is broad because the bacteria, again, can be quite broad. So I suppose I think I underestimated um, how well some of this could actually work because I'm kind of trying to hire more PhD students and more projects because every time we get a set of results, it's like there's a new avenue, there's a new kind of thing we can work on. But certainly the results that we've seen are extremely promising in terms of how uh, we can uh, use either waste streams or natural product resources or natural resources uh, to combat antimicrobial resistance. Um, it's, it's been so successful in a lot of ways that it's kind of opened up a new um, project which was funded there by the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine. It's a, it's a cross-border kind of project with um, Queen's University uh, Belfast as well as University um, of Limerick. What we're looking at is seaweed again, <laughs> our favourite seaweed and how seaweed can be used um, for the extraction of these bioactive compounds and how those bioactive compounds again can be either antibacterial or overcome uh, antimicrobial resistance within uh, pigs. I suppose any type of livestock production will have issues surrounding um, pathogenic bacteria and the potential harm that they can cause to um, a herd or a flock or whatever it might be. Um, and yeah, I suppose being able to kind of combat or minimize the risk mm -hmm. is always useful. From an EU perspective, there was a banning of zinc oxide and zinc oxide is used as a antimicrobial agent within uh, livestock production. So the whole project really came about with trying to find alternative um, kind of sources of antibacterial or antimicrobial agents that could replace zinc oxide and still be safe and, and to use within livestock production. This has got to be good news. However, bringing these possibilities to reality is of course a complex process that will take a lot of time. James and Owen gave me a taste of what's ahead. Uh, so at the minute I've screened uh, a variety of different extracts or natural products you could say um, we've got our good hits, is what we would call them, so our active compounds. Um, and currently now we're looking to try and purify them and isolate them into little compounds, essentially, try and find the individual part in the extract that's active. Um, we're then going to see how does it interact with the antibiotic and kill the bacteria. And then the final step then is to see, is it actually toxic to the human cell lines? So see if humans, could it, could it actually be applicable as a potential drug candidate? But that would be the obviously the pipeline dream now. Um, so there could be from one to nearly 40 compounds within any of our active extracts. Um, typically what you would see is maybe one, two or three of those would be active. The rest might be background noise. So whenever we start to purify it out, we'll get our isolated compound, which might be maybe the next six months, and then we'll retest it. We'll have to retest all those compounds to see which one's the active one, or is it a multitude of different compounds together working synergistically. So that can be very complicated. Yeah, so it's going to be a lot of work. That's yeah. what I signed up for. <laughs> Important, I suppose, as well, to say that having such a diverse pool of potential hits mm. is, is mm. very important because, again, like I said, uh, antimicrobial resistance is inevitable. So, again, you know, when we, even if we come up with some sort of solution with our work with one particular compound, how much of a lifespan or how effective that mm. compound will be, you know, the bacteria will eventually become resistant to that too. 
so then you move on to the next and the next. You know, well, it's frustrating for James perhaps to have so <laughs> many different uh, compounds and extracts to look at. From the actual applicability of the study, mm. it's mm. very important. The benefit of that, even because we're dealing with natural products, the plants or whatever you're looking at, even any fungal samples, they produce such a variety of different diverse compounds. They're so complex that even sometimes you can't synthesize them in a lab. The chemist will be able to synthesize them. So if you're dealing with these variety of different compounds, if one becomes resistant, as Owen said, you've got a host of different complex compounds that are completely different in structure that you could throw it at the bacteria and it won't know what to do and surprise it essentially. And then you might even take, maybe it might take three years, four years for it to become resistant. But then as Owen said, if you have a big pool of different yeah. compounds, you can keep reintroducing new ones. And that might be the new strategy or one of the strategies anyway to tackle this. You can isolate the active components from the actual plants or the waste itself, but then you can create some minor alterations to the actual structure itself in order to make it more potent or even, like I said, to make it more or to make it safer for human consumption or for the animal or whoever the end use might be. Mm. Yeah. So it's a big part of it as well. And again, we always think about it from, a, from what we eat and how the food benefits us. But the reality is a lot of these plants and veg and uh, waste and everything, the compounds that are there or exist have a function primary for that plant or that system mm. to act as a natural antimicrobial agent or antibacterial agent or whatever it might be or a defense mechanism against a predator you know so they're naturally there anyway so everything we need to know is in nature as it is <laughs> do you know what I mean? I can only imagine that making your way through all of these possibilities takes a combination of vision, perseverance and patience. These researchers are admirably positive about the process. I mean, I love, I love what I do. I wouldn't be doing it otherwise. I mean, there's no monetary incentive to, to, to be sitting there reading papers or pouring over data or in the lab kind of thinking how you're going to come over or overcome different problems. Everybody who does research does it because they're passionate about the research and you know they have an idea and they want to see where they can go with that idea. And more often than not, when you end up engaging in research, what you'll find is when you solve one or answer one question, you end up with five, maybe ten other questions. And again, that just spurs off different avenues and it builds your research portfolio and your, your career in research. And James's project was the catalyst for us. And that was funded here with a president's bursary from ATU Sligo. Um, so obviously that's a type of funding that staff members here can avail of. And that has paved the way for us to be able to get national and international funding. Not only just the funding, but to actually interact with colleagues and collaborators and open those avenues. And that's an extremely important part of the research process. So Peter's project is part of the Sea Solutions project. And the PM for that is from Chagas Ashton. And the, the CFE project is looking at the use of seaweeds uh, for uh, combating antibacterial and antimicrobial resistance within uh, pig production and as well as using green technologies in order to extract those bioactive compounds um, and that is headed by Dr Gavin Walker from University of Limerick and as well uh, Dr Pamela uh, Walsh from Queen's University Belfast. As a researcher, Owen also feels that it's really important that all the resources and skills that are put into developing solutions are practically focused and can ultimately be applied in Ireland. So within the life cycle analysis of the different or new approaches to agriculture, 
um, a lot of it kind of is based on theory and instead of kind of large scale practice, you know. If we're talking about um, practicality for Ireland and Ireland's future, I mean, from a, from a plant-based sort of protein alternative, we simply don't have the, the land mass here in order to support large scale production of crops that would be used for those alternative protein sources. So that would naturally put us at a disadvantage to other countries would just have that land mass available to them. Um, if you consider things like alternative proteins, like insect protein and everything else, I mean, I would wonder how unique that would be to Ireland, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and again, the the ability of us to scale up to such a just such a level that we can market a product from an export perspective and have a kind of the same um or even a prospering um kind of agricultural economy or sorry having a, a prospering uh, economy mm. when it comes to agri-food agri but then you'd have to consider the end cost for the consumer then as well and pretty much at the moment there's very little evidence to show that those kind of alternative sources would be cheaper in terms of production or even life cycle analysis than than um, meat-based produce or, you know, dairy produce. Picking up on this thread, Maria Dermicki talks through some of the issues that are being explored when considering whether insect protein might really offer a sustainable food source here. The insects can be environmentally friendly, uh, so when they are being produced, they, they use less land, less water, they produce less greenhouse gas emissions. Um, then on the other hand, they are still very expensive to produce. Um, you need to have certain conditions of light, heat in order to grow them. Uh, one of the advantages that we read in the literature uh, when growing insects is that you, you can feed them waste mm. and then, um, you know, from waste you can have a viable biomass. But um, you can't feed them whatever type of waste you want because you can't really use waste from a regulatory point of view and you need to control what type of feed you give them in order to be able to control uh, the end result. Um, so you can't use catering waste, you can't use uh, insects from the same species, you can't use manure uh, to grow your, uh, your insects. Again, for traceability issues, for uh, health, health and safety issues. So the advantage of using waste streams to grow the insects uh, is not there anymore. So this brings um, a new challenge. And there is you know, a lot of discussion to change the regulation, um, but um, you know, I would be in favor of changing something if it's safe, if it is proved if there is a proof that it is safe um, and you know again if we're thinking about the social uh, pillar of sustainability like when we're talking about sustainable diets um, the definition of um, FAO uh, food and agriculture organization is that the the diets need to be culturally acceptable so we need to make sure that you know people accept these diets and that's that's what our uh, study is is doing is trying to explore which factors would affect this acceptance 
um, you know, we also have to accept the social impact of growing insects versus, you know, the animal farming industry that we have. Um, like livestock farming, the farmers would not be happy. But what we're trying to, to say here is that we're not trying to replace uh, meat. Um, the population is growing and we will need more and more protein and we will not have the sources to, to get this protein. Um, so that's why insects are uh, being explored. Well, I've certainly thought through a lot of things today that aren't usually on my radar. Here's hoping that this heady mix of seaweed, food waste, insects and all the other ways that scientists are exploring to help mitigate climate change will see results. The reality of it is that Ireland depends so much on dairy and livestock production that, I mean, it is extremely important that we try and protect that as a result of having a tried and tested kind of product meets such high standards, not just within Ireland, but globally, yeah. we are able to get a very um, attractive price, I suppose, for those products. Uh, if we think about the agricultural uh, landscape of Ireland as it is, I mean, there are so many dependencies in terms of jobs, not just primary, um, directly employed by the agricultural um, sector, but also then as a side to that and, and more and more jobs are reliant on um, the livestock and dairy production side of agriculture in Ireland. But of course, there is no point in leaving everything up to the scientists. We can all try to give them a helping hand by thinking about how our own personal habits and choices contribute to greenhouse gases. I'll leave you to mull over that one before next week when we'll be talking about something else where we could all look at forming better habits, packaging and waste. I hope you'll tune back in again then, and thanks for listening.